Podcast. Hold on to your butts. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Westcott demands. Now this affects Iris. Um, Iris, where are you? What you feel only matters to you. I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. Iris, I have a tip for you. Don't take drugs! Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to James Cameron Month on Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host, Iris, and I'm here with my older brother, Wesley. And we wanted to kick it off with a doozy, 1989's The The Abyss. Abyss. James Cameron's The Abyss. James Cameron, director of Titanic and Avatar. Was there ever a moment in time where he was James Cameron, director of The Abyss? (laughs) I mean, it was a big Hollywood movie, but ultimately kind of a flop, right? Or kind of a disappointment, maybe is a better way to put it. You know, I think I came to the James Cameron game relatively late. I remember a friend gushing about Aliens, and I was like, Aliens was okay. It wasn't Alien or whatever, but I really came on board with Terminator 2. I was, you know, pretty young. The Abyss is in the middle somewhere. I wondered in revisiting The Abyss because it has been so long since I've seen it that maybe I would come at it with a new appreciation. And that took a while to come around. (laughs) It took a while to come around because this is a hella long movie? Well, it was a hella long movie, not as long as freaking The Batman. But, I mean, The Abyss is not like it's languishing or it's a slow setup. They get right into it. Like, immediately we're in the middle of the action with the sub sinking. Yeah, yeah. In the cold open. Yeah, Titanic on a small scale with the bulkheads just being compromised and water rushing in. And and you kind of have some hope, right? Are we killing people right out right off the bat in a James Cameron film? Apparently we are. We do. But you can definitely see all of the learnings that he had working with water in the abyss, right? With actors, I mean, there was literally one shot with Ed Harris like running down a, a, a hallway. What do you call yep. hallways? And like... Like the corridor or the gangway or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the water is rushing behind him and kind of overtakes him just like it does, you know, Jack and Rose and Titanic. Like you can see how this was a great training ground for him and his opus Titanic. Right. When the water comes rushing down the the hallway in Titanic and starts bursting open doors and things, all CG. (laughs) I mean, maybe the doors were CG. (laughs) Oh, that was CG? That was amazing. Ed Harris was getting hammered by real water. Like we weren't in a place in 1989 where we could convincingly do the water effects. I mean, even Titanic looks a little bit dated now and the abyss avoids a lot of that it avoids looking dated because he just threw people in the water and drowned them in their helmets and stuck rats in this pink solution and and it it only looks cheesy and dated when we get to the stuff we've seen improved upon later the water tentacle thing the Russian water tentacle thing, and then the uh, batteries not included style floaty orbs and benevolent (laughs) aliens. I do want to say that the water tentacle, when I said that it had been used better in other places, of course, this was a training ground for Terminator 2. The original script for Terminator had a metallic Terminator, and James Cameron decided that the technology wasn't up to snuff, so he went with a traditional Stan Winston exoskeleton big giant metal man terminator and then uh, (laughs) obviously revisited that concept for terminator 2 after the proving ground for the technology in the abyss well it sounds like it's worth underscoring that technology 
cinematic technology has either been keeping up with or has been created to accommodate James Cameron's imagination. It seems like, you know, in addition to James Cameron kind of moving the whole technological aspect of cinema forward with his imagination, this film in particular, The Abyss, was an important step on his evolution as a filmmaker for arguably his best films, Terminator 2 and Titanic. And that's the point. Even The Abyss stands as a hallmark for moving special effects forward. And it was a tried and true James Cameron formula. You know they're going to be roughnecks and rough-edged dudes, and then you know the queen bitch of the universe is going to come striding in in her heels and kick people around and stuff. And his female characters have become not more refined, but more rounded. And it's not just everyone hates her and then everyone loves her. There's a middle ground. Uh, the Abyss is basically alien in a way, right? And, and it speaks yeah. to aliens which came before this, but they are a crew of roughneck types who follow a beacon to a derelict craft in an otherworldly environment. Yep. And l luckily for them, the aliens aren't quite so menacing. Yeah, they literally encounter an alien species. Right. Thankfully, a nice one. And they have the guy in the hat who's like comic relief, the, the beastie the boy who's super worried about his rat. And the guy in the hat. The idea that in the end, this whole thing is going to blow up kind of vibe that they're they're racing against to save humanity, I guess. Some parallels there. Yeah, plus Michael Bean. Michael Bean, yeah, who's the, I guess he's the Ash character in Alien where he goes buggo ultimately. Mm -hmm. But uh, as soon as Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio says, you know, one in 20 people or whatever go buggo, I was like, well, someone's going buggo because I hadn't seen this movie <laughs> since I was a kid. And I really <laughs> hoped it was going to be Ed Harris because Ed Harris makes a, an amazing, wonderful bad guy. Michael Bean and his little mustache, I wasn't sure about, but OK, because he's tough and buff and oiled up and scary looking. He also is kind of like a Jamie Bamber, Battlestar Galactica, pretty boy type at least this early in his career. So, all right, convince me, because the mustache isn't doing it. The mustache covered up his distracting lip thing, Michael Bean's Felicity Jones mouth. Like, this was kind of the precursor role to his cowboy role in Tombstone, where he's just kind of like a restrained, but ultimately terrifying and menacing bad guy. Yeah, as Johnny Ringo. I don't think of him as a bad guy. Come to think of it, he has played a number of bad guys' roles, but he will always be Kyle Reese to me. And uh, we have a cowboy character in this movie, too. The tomboy girl who's, like, all loud and brash wearing the Brett Michaels straw cowboy hat. Oh, yeah, yeah. One night. Yeah. She was a lot of fun. And I loved, loved her moment when she stood up to Michael Bean. It was so powerful and awesome. She's tough. She's a James Cameron tough lady. <laughs> James Cameron does love the tough ladies. And in the case of Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, you got it's her rig, and she'll be damned if anybody messes with her rig. Some alien <laughs> stuff. Uh, she was kind of the Ripley, I guess, maybe just hair. But then there was aliens stuff as well, where the rig is compromised, and then the queen comes. I guess it's the wrong kind of queen. These are better, nicer aliens. There were some nice touches and attention to detail for her character. Like she comes in in the heels, but she's immediately in her coveralls or whatever her work attire was. I forget exactly. And she obviously knows her way around the ship. Some real nice moments for the evolution of their relationship and them coming back together. But the one I wanted to focus on specifically was when she when she's when she's dead. 
and and <laughs> Bud's trying to spoiler. <laughs> and Bud's trying to resuscitate her, and it just fits so nicely in the story that he well he not only will he not give up on her, but he knows that she'll never give up, and it makes what is an otherwise pretty unrealistic situation kind of believable for me, where I was like. You know, if someone's going to come back, it's going to be her because she has the the fight in her and the willingness to live. And then he goes all crazy on her and starts calling her a bitch and slapping her dead face. And then she comes back and I was like, ah. I think that these are the touches that make James Cameron a good filmmaker. They are big moments, memorable moments, hugely dramatic moments that cost zero dollars. They, mm. they had the whole exchange about you got to do it and you got to let me die. And it made otherwise uh, like what would have been just a general like hold your breath, going to make it. Oh, my God. And like relying on score and things. Is she going to make it to the pool? We knew that she was going to die. They had a very long, intense conversation before doing it. And then uh, the with her death scene and trying to resurrect her, that was like three minutes or something or more of screen time where nothing really happens. Like he's just like yelling and hammering at her chest and slapping her around. And it's really emotional that requires zero budget or zero special effects to carry it along. I'm not, no, I don't know that it's, if it's nuanced storytelling, but it's definitely keeping us in the moment and focusing on things that are important for the movie. It's kind of like the idea of watching the little blip sensor, beep. And you know there are hordes of aliens coming. And all we have Mm. is that one insert shot of the little thing. It's we're focused on their faces and the minutiae. And Ed Harris can be sailing down three or four miles below the surface in his rat water mask. And like all we can see is his eyes. And he's like in a swimming pool, right? And they're filming him. And then James Cameron's yelling through a megaphone or whatever he's got to be like, make your eyes crazy. Make it like you're drowning. And a lot of really close suspense that substitutes for spectacle and budget. I mean, this is when the abyss got really interesting for me. I was like, is she going to make it? And then a sign that I was invested was my annoyance at how they pulled off the drowning uh, swim, right? You, he, they all knew to oxygenate their blood as much as possible. You Why do wasn't it, she you, hyperventilating? I don't know. And then you take the deepest breath possible so you die, <laughs> so you die on the way. And that way your, bra- your brain is, is deficient, is denied oxygen for only three minutes instead of six minutes or whatever it was. <laughs> They also deliberated for a long time about this. But he waited until she died and then screamed and yelled before dragging her along. And you're like, move! Move! And the water's (laughs) creeping up their faces. It's tense and it's effective. It's not 100% the way I would have done it. (laughs) I mean, assuming that you had your reasoning and logic intact and all your faculties you know involved in your decision making like i i gave bud a bit of a pass that you know he he was kind of so in shock that he waited but i definitely was like what are you waiting for like swim your heart out go ed harris is the man and ed harris is great at exactly this kind of role this super steely intensity at this sort of military slash roughneck kind of role Uh, If you recall, he had another standoff with Michael Bean a few years later, five years later in The Rock. That was kind of a reunion. And I I wondered, 
Ed Harris seems like the ideal person to anchor James Cameron's movies. He's like the hardline guy who seems like he could be a Terminator uh, opposite Michael Bean. Why wasn't Ed Harris in more James Cameron movies? I'm surprised because James Cameron seems so loyal to his actors. Yep. And reusing everybody. Yeah. I mean, maybe it takes a couple cycles, but multiple appearances for Michael Bean, Sigourney Weaver, um, now Kate Winslet with the Avatar sequels. So who was the James Cameron regular among the cast of The Abyss? Other than Michael Bean? Well, that's it. It's really Michael Bean. And when you think about Michael Bean's character, he had to look intense and he had to have that mustache and he was greased up a little bit. And that's kind of it. He was bad guy on the ship. He ne never had to make daring swims, never had to deal with outrunning the water, crushing him from behind in the, in the gangway or anything, right? Yeah, he had one throwdown with Bud. Right, but that's... I mean, that's a standard blocked fight and, and they're in the water and stuff. And he was most of the time he was dominating Bud in that fight. So he didn't have to fly around in the water or anything. Right. The point I'm making is that Michael Bean had it relatively easy on the set of The Abyss. And Ed Harris to this day still will not fully disclose everything he went through on the set of The, the Abyss. I mean, the whole cast had crazy names. This is James Cameron maybe at the highest, not going to say abuse of his powers, but flexing his determination to get a movie that's really difficult to make. I mean, Titanic above water a lot of the time was a logistical nightmare. This is underwater, in the water, in things under the water. And there were a lot a lot of problems. Uh, James Cameron almost drowned. Ed Harris almost drowned. And it was very, very dangerous. And supposedly Ed Harris punched James Cameron in the face after his disregard for his safety in which Ed Harris feels he almost drowned. They called it Son of Abyss, The Abuse, Life's Abyss, and Then You Die. Because of James Cameron's notorious uh, drive for perfection, uh, people, his cast on The Abyss, do not look back on this movie fondly. And as such, no one really carried over except for Michael Bean, who I think it had it a little bit easier. Uh, even Kate Winslet, who did, who made no secret of the fact that James Cameron was very hard on her as a, what, 18-year-old, 19-year-old girl, didn't work with him again for 20 years before she showed up on the set of Avatar 2. So, you know, relentless drive in perfection and in dangerous conditions that are really hard, uh, the abyss seems to take its toll on people. I don't know if that negatively affected box office. I do feel like I can see the efforts and the trials and the scariness in the abyss. And that really ramps up as we get to the more intense moments later on. But I was a little bored up top. Hmm. There's some really funny moments up top and early on. You get the dynamic between Bud and Mrs. Brigman. And um, the funny moment with the ring in the in the toilet and the blue hand that follows him for the rest of the movie. Like yep. all that stuff is, I think, pretty, pretty essential for setting up what eventually pays off. I mean, it would be one thing if it didn't pay off. It would be one thing if this movie was three hours. But at two hours and 20 minutes, considering the depth, get it? Depth uh, and depth. breadth of the story. <laughs> and breadth, breadth of the story that they cover it seems justified. Now, what I don't know is if the alien subplot was really necessary. I mean, <laughs> what's the abyss about? The abyss is about them going down into this abyss and discovering alien life or making contact with alien life. And we can't, because we can't reveal the alien until later, you tell me, please, <laughs> what is the first hour and a half of the abyss about? 
<laughs> before the introduction of the alien species. Right. What are we doing? It's the mission, right? And there's the storm and there's the collapse of the, the surface infrastructure and they just get deeper and deeper into it. But they're going down, they're, they're trying to salvage the warheads, right? Well, that is Michael B. That's the SEAL team's secret objective. The surface objective is for the rig crew, whom are the closest to the submarine wreckage, to go in and see if there are survivors, rescue any survivors. So it's a rescue mission with a secret military objective Alien. that goes that goes right. Basically, yeah, it's alien. I'm not sure that the aliens, while they came in to save the crew, I don't know, to your point, if they saved the movie. Was it necessary? Did it pay off? Unfortunately, continues to be, for me, the most dated aspect of the movie. Yeah. Um, they, they were kind of cute, and they were nice to them, but I didn't get a, <laughs> a sense of connection with the alien. Maybe we could suggest that the aliens in the abyss intentionally sunk the submarine? Were they trying to mess with the submarine because it was carrying the, the nuclear warhead and to interfere with whatever their mission was, presumably to blow is, something is up? Are we giving that, are we allowing them that prescience? Are they environmentalists? Are they trying to save <laughs> the humanity with whom they've had no contact from nuclear annihilation or I guess themselves? I mean, I guess, I, I mean, it seems like they were definitely a part of that, the inciting incident, and then they have a message to deliver at the end. So it seems like they, they have to be co correlated a little bit. Well, you ask what the abyss is about, and I think that the aliens are essential to the ultimate message that James Cameron wants to deliver, and that is facing the abyss of life and it's many manifestations, <laughs> like a very deep, it's a very deep thing, but, you know, the abyss is the the depth and the extent of the ocean. The abyss is the eternal darkness or area to explore within us. And the abyss is the eternal darkness of death. There's a lot of deep stuff going on here. I'm not saying that it's necessary for James Cameron's movie to succeed. What I'm saying is I think that's what he was ultimately going for and why maybe the aliens are necessary. Man, that is forgiving. You were exactly the person he was aiming for with Avatar. <laughs> because here's how invested I was in this. They set up a lot of stuff and I paid attention. I did remember some things from when I had first seen this movie. But I was like, here we go. Now there's the, the main fight starts, the main conflict. They have that slow underwater chase in the, in the submersible pods. And I was like, woo! And then so then they did the Mufasa thing at the edge of the cliff with him. And he was like, no. And then and then get it. The pressure got to him. The pressure oh. was too much for Michael Bean. And then it was over and he was dead. And I was like, yay, they totally won. That's cool. So that thing with the, the rat when the breathing underwater, the pink rat fluid thing, right? They set that up and they never used it in the movie. And Kelly was like, no, that's coming with the aliens. And I was like, what? There's more? And then there was like another 45 minutes of going to get the warheads and meeting the aliens and him being in the rat pink goo helmet. And I in the amniotic fluid. Talk about tacked. I'm not tacked on because it was important. But I honestly was like at a place where the James Cameron movie ended for me. And then there was all this alien stuff. And I was like, this, it feels like a different movie. 
Yes. And that's what I'm saying. When the aliens really start taking shape, you're like, what? Like, what is going on here? And maybe that was intentional so that we're kind of in the same experience with the crew. But I was definitely like, whoa, this is getting really weird really fast. And then he's in that air chamber you know, fathoms under the sea and he sees all this weird video and he's talking to them and like talking back to them. And then he emerges all triumphant and decompressed at the end. Uh And it was like, whoa. And we're going to see these elements again moving forward. The understanding is that slight spoiler Avatar 2 will feature the underwater portion of Pandora or possibly other planets nearby that we hadn't seen before. This is a James Cameron movie, and it's got it echoes the themes of any and all of the other movies, possible exception of True Lies. It feels so James Cameron. In a way, I kind of expected more based on that alone. And The Abyss was fine, but there was a reason, as we've discussed with other movies, that I hadn't seen it in like 20 years and didn't remember all that much about it. I mean, a big movie for its time, I think 45 plus million dollar budget, did garner at least one Academy Award, I think for visual effects. And most importantly, the primer for James Cameron as a filmmaker, this is where he met the visual effects team that was able to bring the magic to the screen for Terminator 2. And so a necessary step in the James Cameron evolution, maybe not as much of a leap for cinema in general, but kind of, you know, action-y and cerebral in a way that most movies don't aspire to, let alone achieve. It's a little bit like John Carpenter's The Fog in that, for me, it's the least seen movie. I mean, it came after Aliens and right before Terminator 2, which really solidified him as... An undeniable success. One, it can be argued that Aliens traded on the success of Alien. And, uh, you know, Terminator was a big deal, but Terminator 2 really solidified him. So maybe this is the last gasp of James Cameron trying to find his voice. And it is all there. It doesn't drive me in the same way that some of his other films do. But it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's definitely interesting to hear the story, particularly of how troubled this production was. It's kind of akin to Steven Spielberg thinking that Jaws was going to sink his career. He would never make a movie on the water again. and wasn't sure how it was going to turn out. Francis Ford Coppola and Apocalypse Now could not have been more difficult on set, where he contemplated suicide and all this thing, all these things, and he thought it was going to ruin him forever. I'm not sure that James Cameron felt that way, but definitely a beleaguered production that didn't inspire a lot of loyalty from a lot of the cast members, uh, even if he did so later on, maybe when he got his footing and really got some of the respect and authority, I guess, he deserved uh, after the success of Terminator 2. Yeah, you can't fault James Cameron, or you can't say that James Cameron doesn't have ambition and that he follows that through in a way that results in some pretty spectacular filmmaking. And not to discredit the, you know, the kind of the abuse that maybe some of his actors and and crew endure on set, like that's not cool. And I think people are really being called to account for that kind of behavior in Hollywood. But, you know, he's not on the wrong side or hasn't been called out for the Me Too stuff or for the overt and outright, you know, assault and abuse on sets. I don't know. But I think that the magic of James Cameron is that he brings such a personal and vested interest to his films for our delight and our entertainment. Like, 
I'm a scuba diver and this has a general interest to me and it's amazing to see the spectacle that he creates underwater even if it's fictionalized it's crazy to me that this technology that he displays the the amniotic fluid or what's it called the um, oxygenated fluorocarbon yep that he uses like that that's a a real technology that he previewed in like a class demonstration when he was like in junior high or high school like that was something that that blew his mind and that stuck with him and that he worked into a, a narrative to kind of bring i don't know visibility and light to it like the fact that the what the rat experienced was an actual experimentation probably questionable in terms of you know american <laughs> humane but it really worked it really happened and that's insane and we it saw is. it on film yeah the rat is a perfect example of probably the making and experience of the abyss he was going to do it it was going to be real it was going to be genuine and honest and it was all in service of the movie that rat was actually put into the oxygenated fluorocarbon and actually had to breathe it and they kept they got it all on film and the only reason they cut away to the actors watching or being afraid for the rat was because on camera when that happened the rat freaked out and crapped all over the place and they, cut, they had to cut away from it. And and I think that however actors freak out and crap all over themselves, James Cameron is going to get his movie made. And, He's going to get the shot. And we can say that he was right. Like, look, we're not promoting abuse or anything like that. But if we've come to understand anything, it's that you have to trust in James Cameron's vision, I guess. If you get in the way, it will likely be a lesser movie. And if your feelings are hurt, he doesn't necessarily care and he's going to get it done you know with within i suppose reasonable limits because he breathed the stuff himself in the movie and i think in real life and knew that the rat wouldn't come to harm he's just going to put it through its paces if it's going to be the star of his movie i mean i was watching that scene and i was like wow how did they do that that looked really real <laughs> no they drowned the rat I hope that Ed Harris just had a little bit of Kool-Aid thrown into the water and that he had like a flush valve or something because I hope that they didn't make him breathe that stuff in the scene, you know, for any amount of time. I mean, I just assume that there was a, a second layer to his helmet. They oh, that would be clever. Up, and they just filled up that front layer. I was looking for his eyebrows to see if his eyebrow hair moved. <laughs> I mean, that would be a simple special effect for them to have done for Ed Harris. I would say that The Abyss is a good movie. And that despite being it released 30 years ago, it really holds up. I'm not compelled to watch it again or to keep it on any lists or whatever. But like, I think just an important, an important but kind of forgotten film. Yep. And so ultimately, what is your rating? As happens with a lot of movies that I don't necessarily love, but have a real place in cinema history, it was just as interesting to read about the stuff that happened behind the scenes that informed the stories, because it did get intense, and I was compelled, and I was very invested in the slow chase across the ocean, and all the yelling and stuff, uh, but the rest of it seemed almost James Cameron routine. It's like if you made a movie, if you went to James Cameron summer camp, filmmaking summer camp, and they put you in a rig and you shot a movie, maybe someone would come up with the abyss. But it was fine. <laughs> and so I like the ancillary stuff. I think that it, it, as production stands, it's akin to another gigantic water movie like Waterworld, where it's so much happened behind the scenes, it almost propels the movie through the ages, in part because of its backstory uh, as well. 
I mean, I get, I give the abyss a. It was fine. It was, it was all right. An important film that kind of got left behind. It suffered from the curve. We get Titanic water stunts and action. We get Terminator Two CG human effects. We get, you know, Avatar glowy stuff, and we get. <laughs> Cameron's signature character dynamics and humor from True Lies, all in the abyss. So an important film to recognize when discussing James Cameron's body of work, as we are doing in James Cameron Month 2022 here on Over Whatever Movies. So you got a good from Iris and all right from Wes. That's our review on the abyss let us know what you think on social media at or whatever movies on instagram or whatever movies.com is where you can find several other james cameron related podcasts as well as another 150 movie reviews from iris and west so thanks for listening and we'll see you next time today is working for me do you believe that for yourself Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for Season 2 of the Wannabet Podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that Season 2 starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wannabet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. No more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric acid. Electric acid.